The following is a production of Galactic Netcasts. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. And these stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello and welcome to the 37th gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 17th of January. I am your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure you have something clever written down before you do the podcast while you're gathered at the meeting table. Uh, Once again, I I couldn't come up with anything clever. It's only happened a few times, but uh, today was one of those days. On that note, let's continue on. That was an awkward pause. You're welcome. Uh, our guest uh, today is Keith Mateka. Thank you. you Keith Mateka. Took me a second. Keith Mateka, and he is the designer and owner of Thunderworks Games, and he has created Bullfrogs and Roleplayer, which in a previous episode we talked about Roleplayer on Kickstarter. And uh, we wanted to talk about his games, uh, find out more about Thunderworks, and uh, what his process is for creating new games, and probably get a little bit of uh, some of his uh, insight on uh, his experience with Kickstarter. I I was going to do a story, and and I may change my story here about the success that board games have had this past year uh, on Kickstarter, far more than, than video games, so... Uh, I think I might uh, swap out my news story for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Our second in command here, as always, is uh, Glenn Bittner, and he is a movie reviewer on his YouTube show, The B-Movie Bunker, and the creator of the RPG Mist Runner. How are you? I'm annoyed that people keep seeming to think I have dementia with all these pictures of rotary phones and Pog and be like, do you remember this? I'm like, I'm not that old. I mean, I'm 40... (laughs) Another 140. Um, yes, I remember rotary phones. You know, it wasn't that long ago. It's not like you know. Do you remember dinosaurs? Well, no. But I used to ride one to school. It was quite awesome. Yes. Nice. <laughs> you get some spurs on a Velociraptor, and you know, just poke a Velociraptor on the side, and you can really get to school quickly. I'm making that up. Say. Oh. <laughs> I assume your birthday was recently, Glenn, or is it today, or is it? No. August. <laughs> People are just recently making comments that maybe. I, just, uh, I, I see these things on Facebook all the time. You know the, you know, like if you remember this, I'm like, really? It's it's a rotary phone. Great, it's <laughs> awesome. It'd be something I, I want to remember. If you post a picture, hey, remember Ariel and Ukla? Then yes, I will. I will gladly say Lords of Light. And I will remember my fondness of Another Barbarian, which I plan to watch. The entire run of on my vacation. This as week. as well you should, because every once in a while it's good to shout out I before yes. you run into doing something. <laughs> I, and it's, uh, it's a sun sword, not a lightsaber. Absolutely, <laughs> a distinct difference. Thank you, Jack Kirby, for creating such a wonderful show. He did the design work for the uh, for the characters for that show. 
I did not know that. Little known fact, and more I have more useless crap shoehorned into this head than I will ever... <laughs> Ask me where my shoes are uh, or where my keys are. I probably won't know, but I'll remember that Jack Kirby did design work for Thundar the Barbarian. It's sad. Hey, this show is starting off with a bang. <laughs> Tangents aplenty. So we are going to uh, jump into this and uh, get back on track here. We're going to do our regular review start to this show here uh, by Glenn, and you have... A very, very interesting game here. Tell us about this. I have brought before us today Libertalia. This one uh, is out from Asmodee is the one who puts it out. It's a game by uh, Paolo Mori, who brought, probably best known for all of his little pocket battles games he worked on, it's like Imperial vs. the Union and stuff like that. But this one is about pirates. Fact, yes. I'll actually read the little description that from the publisher, where it's, Captain Swallow has always dreamed of pocketing a large nest egg in order to retire in a remote island. But he never counted on co stiff competition from Captain Stanley, Rackham, Dirk Shivers, and others, greedy and cruel enemies, who always manage to attack the same ships as him. If he wants to finally sink back and enjoy peaceful days in the sun, he must become the most cunning pirate. So, in this game, uh, basically, yeah, you are competing uh, pirate captains, Raiding the same ship. So what you have... <laughs> that would be confusing. Yeah. So each player, uh, there, there's a deck of pirate cards that each player will have, different pirates that do different things. And each round, uh, you're going to randomly select some of those cards to have in your hand. Everyone will start with the same cards each round, or at least the first round, and then you add the same ones as rounds progress. Then as, you, uh, as a turn progresses, everyone's going to play a card face down. Uh, once everyone's done, so you reveal them. Place them, each pirate has a numerical order, and you place them on the ship in numerical order from lowest to highest. Now, there are two things that happen while you're on the ship. First is some pirates have a little sun symbol, which means they have a daylight action. And that means you do those actions starting from the lowest number working to the highest. Then you have their normal actions, which is letting you choose a booty from the ship, and that is going from highest to lowest. And the booty will be sometimes good things like gold or, or some barrels of rum, or it could be things like cursed objects, which you don't want. And what makes this game nifty is that sometimes you have a really low-numbered card that'll do some pretty cool things to screw up other people's plans. Like the parrot, which is number one, if you happen to have it, you reveal that, you then get to play a different card from your hand. So now you know what everyone else has done and you get to do your little thing. Of course, all these people are one-time use only for the most part. And there's other little nifty mechanics, too. You've got, like, there's the brute, who's, like, right in the middle of the number thing. He's about number 14, I think. And his power is, is that he throws the highest-numbered person off the boat. So if somebody plays a higher-numbered card than you, and you happen to play the brute, you're going to kick him off the boat. However, if your brute is the highest-numbered person on the boat, he throws himself off the boat. I even played a game once where all four of us played brutes, and one by one we threw each other off the boat. Right. And then ended up no one got treasure that round because nobody was left on the boat because the last brute, being the last high number, threw himself off the boat. It's, it's yeah, it's a, there's a lot of great interaction that can happen because some pirates once once you are done collecting loot, they will go into what's called your den, meaning they'll sit over on the side and they could collect you points at the end of a round. There are things that might let you kill someone's pirates who are in their den. Some pirates in your den have a bad effect. So it all depends on, on what you play and how you play it will determine how much loot you get each round. 
and you're going to raid three ships over the course of the game, each time getting some new pirates into your hand to do different things. Pirates you didn't use in the previous round will carry over. So sometimes you might hang on to somebody, and all of a sudden it's like, I've got a brute. I know everyone else has played there, so now I don't have to worry about him being thrown off, and I can mess with other people's bigger characters by saying, oh, you're playing a Spanish governor? Nope, I'm going to throw his ass over. It's just, I, I like the fact that there's a lot of interaction between the players. There's always something going on that lets you do things, and in some ways you can get hosed massively, as I did in the last game I played, where... We just, there's one card that lets you pass the monkey, lets you pass your cursed objects to the player to your left. And four people all play that at the same time, and I happen to have the highest numbered monkey, which means that everyone passed all of their crap to me. Because it went one person passed theirs, the next person passed the person next to them, then that person passed all of them to me, and I ended up with a whopping negative eight points for the round. Which <laughs> is a pretty low score, if you can imagine, negative eight is not the type of numbers you want to win the game. And it's just, I, I like the fact that there's so much interaction between players. I, I, I like competitive games where you're actually competing with someone and not playing solitaire games and, you know, seeing whose score is better at the end of it. Like Agricola. <laughs> at least my experiences with Agricola. Sure. Uh, just a lot of fun. The, the one thing that I like about this game is that it plays a relatively high number of players, Yes. And it doesn't really bog down the, the time of the game. There's like very few games that I like to play with up to six players, and this is one of them. I actually quite like Libertalia. There we go. Uh, for the folks that are watching us uh, live on YouTube or uh, watching us uh, in the archive video on YouTube, Board Game Geek's website has been running a little slow, so I've been having some trouble pulling up uh, some of the graphics, but it's finally coming through now. And here's an image of the monkey. That little bastard. <laughs> we can see the monkey. There's a parrot. There's a, I'm gonna guess cabin that's boy. a cabin boy. Yeah. So a, a lot of different and interesting mechanics to this game. Yeah, and, and I feel, I feel oh like my. this game was like super ripe for an expansion. Like it's been out for quite a while now, and you know I, I can just think of like 20 other you know roll cards that you can kind of throw into the mix to to liven it up. I played this game like maybe 15, 15 to 18 times probably, and oh wow. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorites for, like, up to six players. And it's yes. short. I mean, it's like about 45 minutes, maybe. Yep. Just, oh, perfect. I mean, I mean, that's almost unheard of for a six-player game. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's nice having a six-player game because there's there's something in the board game world. I can understand the whole, you know, four-player thing, but so many games cut off at five. Yeah. And it's so annoying because the, the monthly group I run, I always have six people. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes more, but you know, sure. there's, there's like this. The core group is usually six of us, and it's hard finding games everyone can play. So sometimes we have to break apart in groups. And these are people I get to see once a month, and I want to play games with them. So it's nice having a six-player game that isn't also going to take all day, so we can get in a couple of games. Oh, that's a beautiful board. Oh. Yeah, it's, the artwork is 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 very, and the cover components really, are very well done. The cover is really hot too, I think. Yeah. Wonderful. And about how much does this retail for, Glenn? I knew you were going to ask me this question. I should have looked <laughs> it up beforehand. It, it's about $50. Okay. Okay. So that's pretty standard from, from what we've been seeing. And it's really cool, especially with all the pieces that you see here and, and from some of the pictures that I've been flipping through. For a game that has that many pieces, that quality of artwork, and can fit that many people in, $50 is 
kind of a steal. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon says the list is forty nine ninety five. So. Okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, are you currently carrying this at the board game barrister? We are. I have one on my shelf right now, nice. both in my house and at the store. <laughs> I kind of assumed you had one at your house. <laughs> yes. Glenn, I think it was at the end of last week's episode, Glenn pointed his uh, camera after we had kind of wrapped everything up and, and showed me his his racks and racks of board games that he has in his house, and it is spectacular. And then we cried a little bit over the amount of money that he and I have both spent on, on his games and my comic books. Yeah. That's... Sorry, Grease, I could have bailed you out, but I needed a <laughs> copy of Trails uh, of a Brimstone. <laughs> Ah, oh, so much paper, so much paper, but it's it's all worth it, all worth it. I regret so nothing. I'm homeless, I can make a house out of it. <laughs> well, you'll never be bored, and you'll always have friends, because they'll want a game with you. I hope so. <laughs> all right, well, thank you for sharing that with us, Glenn. And that game again totally. is Libertalia, and this is from... Asmodee. Okay, cool. They make so many cool games. Oh, they own everybody now, just about. Because oh. they, they just they just they just bought Catan as well now. Oh wow! So, That's yeah. kind of a big deal. The Catan in the U.S. Right? They still. Yes, Catan in the U.S. Right. Wow. Still a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that, Glenn. Absolutely, um, man. So we are a part of a collection of podcasts and the the core group as we call ourselves is Galactic Netcasts and we would really like your help listeners. Uh, if you enjoy what you hear we'd uh, ask that you consider to make a contribution to help us pay for web and audio hosting. We're this close to signing up to uh, get a, a better web audio hosting service and uh, probably going to be making that purchase within the next week or two. And that will help guarantee good quality audio and remove some of the caps that we've found that we've had uh, through the service that we're currently using. So if you could uh, offer your support on a monthly basis for as little as a dollar a month, you can help us uh, continue to offer a lot of great programming that we do have and, and have as good a quality of service for you to, to be able to listen to these things. If you were to offer uh, $3 a month uh, in support, uh, that gets you a monthly newsletter with some extra stories uh, related to uh, our podcasts that we offer. And if you do a $5 uh, support uh, monthly, that will get you an extra episode of each of our podcasts, and that's only available through our uh, to our patrons. So if you go to patreon.com slash galactic netcasts and donate what you can, we would greatly appreciate that. All right, news. I just, uh, while Glenn was talking about the game, I didn't say much, and that's because I was swapping out my news story to get this good story in here. Tabletop games raised twice as much as video games on Kickstarter in 2015. And I think in the history of the show, we've only talked about only one. Maybe, yeah, the, uh, the, the bus game, which was just ridiculously funny. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I wish I could remember the name of the game now. Jason won. Yeah, that was the uh, the bus where... Oh, that was the episode where we had the uh, the LARPs cast on. 
The, the oh, cra- yes. That's yeah, right. the crazy bus where basically you just drive a bus and uh, you destroy things for for money as your bus slowly increases speed and you don't want to flip your bus over. But anyways, I digress. That was one of the few. But according to uh, crowdfunding data that Kickstarter released, video games pulled in over $46 million in pledges in 2015. Tabletop games raised nearly double that amount at $88 million. Now, of that was the uh, super huge mega hit on Kickstarter called Exploding Kittens. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that was 10% of that. So, you know, that that's that's 8 million at least. So all all the rest of that was was all of the games that they had on there. And we've talked about a lot of them over this past year. And uh, not only did tabletop games raise more money overall, but they were also far more likely than video games to meet their funding goals. Uh, There were 1,230 successfully funded tabletop Kickstarter campaigns last year compared to 421. So that's three times approximately more successful with the tabletop games as opposed to video games. They're probably like twice as likely to actually ship their product in a reasonable time as well. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing that we're going to get into later on. Some of the, uh, some of the issues that uh, video games run into is a part of their unlockable goals, their stretch goals, it, they got into a situation of what's called feature creep. And that's where you, know, you promise if you give us you know, this much more, we'll add you know, another level, or we'll add another character, or we'll add something else. And the thing that's not always taken into account is the amount of development time and coding time that takes that would need to take place to to meet those deadlines. So, yeah, that, that would shoot people in the rear uh, quite often. So. Sure. I mean, in my, like, 9-to-5 job, you know, I've worked in uh, the video game industry since 2001 mm-hmm. or something, so... Okay. Um, I'm very familiar with like what it takes to um, pull off some of these projects, and I, sure. I think people just in general underestimate the amount of time and effort that it takes to make a video game. I mean, video games, even the simplest ones, are you know immensely more complicated to put together than than a board game experience. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and I work in in the web division for a radio station group, so sure. when you know when we offer uh, I'm sorry, I say we like I have a whole lot to do with it. I do more, I do more training, so I'll, I'll get a finished piece of software and then I'll help people learn how to use it. But talking with uh, our developers, they'll come up with a list of features that they would like to have and then they shoot for as much as they can within that window of time, uh, at least to make it functional and then try to get as many additional bits that they want to have in in that time period and then anything left over is you know when they do another iteration uh, on that particular piece of software to squash bugs or you know whatever and add functionality then they have a list of uh, projects or a a list of items that they want to add to the system so sure but uh, they have a tough job I (laughs) they have a very tough job so uh, the, the other interesting thing in this news article, this article is from SiliconAngle.com. They mention that, let's see, perhaps one of the most interesting t- statistics 
to come uh, from Kickstarter's report is the fact that while tabletop games raised twice as much money as video games and were nearly three times as likely to be funded, the total number of backers was not significantly different between the two. Tabletop campaigns were backed by 522,061 people, whereas video game campaigns were backed by 480,382 people, a difference of only about 8%. So I, mean, I assume that's all about like how much, what value people place on a video game versus a board yeah. game. You know, it's like if I'm pledging towards an Arcadia Quest and the basic pledge level is 100 bucks. As a board gamer, I don't flinch at that, uh, at least not too hard. But, like, people are used to paying uh, 99 cents for apps on, you know, iTunes and stuff. And it's sure. like just the perceived value of a video game versus board game is a lot different these days. Well, that is, I, I think the add-ons, when you have add-ons and yeah. stuff like that, too, because if if I'm making a board game like, like Arcadia Quest and I have add-ons that are more minis, People are going to pay more money for those because they're getting more physical objects. If you say we're going to make this game bigger, if you pay another twenty dollars for it, people are going to be like, "I'm already paying you sixty bucks for a video game. I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to pay another twenty just because you you put more because because it still is just a program and a program is an intangible thing that you can't hold in your hand and say this has weight and and heft and feel and texture to it like you do with a board game. Is there any st- is there any data in that report about like the average pledge amount of a board game pledge versus a video game pledge? Let's see. Because no matter what video game it was, if it was on Kickstarter and they wanted 50 bucks from me, I wouldn't even look at it. But if it's a board game, I totally would look at it. Yeah, I don't see that information in the article here. But no, you're absolutely right. Looking at... uh, Anessa, my girlfriend and I, went to Barnes & Noble and we were looking at some games, and I picked up a game. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. Oh, it was, um, uh, what is it, from the Arkham Horror line, Mansions of Madness? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I picked that up, and I'm like, 80 bucks. Ooh, I'll have to wait till next paycheck. And then the next day, we went to the mall, and we looked at Fallout 4, and I'm like, I don't know if I can spend you know, $60 on that. It needs to come down a little bit. I mean, so the perceived value is definitely definitely in play from what you're talking about. And also when you look at games like, what's a good example, like Minecraft, there there are different DLCs that, downloadable content that you can add to, to something, but that needs to be somewhere between 2 to $10, I think, for people to really bite on it. Anything more than that, it really needs to significantly change the game before I think you're willing to open your purse strings. I would agree with that 100%. Sure. Uh, just a quick uh, recommend, Mansions of Madness. Uh, uh, do you guys, you, obviously you guys have, have heard of it and have probably played it. Your thoughts? Yep. Um, my thoughts on that game is that I, it takes literally probably a half hour to set up, so that's a kind of a deal killer for some people. Oh, and if okay. you make any mistakes during the setup, it can kind of spoil the game experience. Oh, no. You get okay. to the end and be like, oh, this wasn't set up right. This doesn't make any sense, so there's no <laughs> way you guys could have won. You know, that, that can happen in that game, which is a bummer, but the thing that I... It's really atmospheric, and the narrative is strong. I think at the end of the game, it's really... It's kind of an event game, like it's a game that you would sit down and put it on the, the calendar. Hey, we're going to play this game for three hours, and people come over and play it, and I think it can be really cool. The setup is a bit of a bummer, but in general, I think it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's it's. I agree with the setup. 
and I mean, I've, I've got a, a handful of games that are like that where setup is a bear with, you know, like, the, like that one and the Firefly board game with its 800 different draw decks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely, have, have you played like Arkham Horror, Brad, or any of the, any of those types of games or I think I think I've played and it would have been a very long time ago, like in the early nineties. I, I suppose I actually I would equate it most more actually more closely. It's it's almost it's it's like a role playing game in a board game form. Okay. Because right. you have one person who's who's the keeper, you know, who basically you know is the person orchestrating everything that's happening. Except that unlike a how a role playing game is supposed to be, they're actually are playing against you. It is us versus you <clears> or <throat> me versus them type of thing. So. Okay. Yeah, I'd say it's closer to to the scent or doom or something like that than yeah. Arkham or Eldritch, but oh, okay. Um, if you Dude, want to play you, get, like, you get Shoggoth miniatures. <laughs> the minis are really nice. That's They're really nice. Okay. Really nice. Okay. And um, it's it can be when you're when you're playing the game as the as the like the heroes, and you've got it all worked in your head. It's like I know exactly we're gonna win. This is gonna be perfect. I'm like I'm Ashcan peeing up my dog. He can go in the next room and grab something. I'm in the foyer. I am basically ready to leave the building. The thing we need is in the next room. Without having to move, I can have my dog go get it. He'll bring it to me. I'll leave the building. We win. Just before I can do that, the keeper flips over the next card in the little time deck, and it's like suddenly the lights go off, the doors slam shut, and it's like, no! One step away from winning. So, yeah, it really creates a, it creates great tension in that. The thing that's, that's fun is that, like, as at the beginning, the heroes don't know how to win the game. So part yeah, of the game is like figuring out oh, sure. what the problem is and, and what the solution is. So there's kind of you end up <clears throat> kind of going down to some dead ends to, to figure out what the proper path is sometimes. It yes. almost sounds to me like Betrayal at House on the Hill is a very light version of of Mansions of Yeah, Madness. kind of. It has some similarities. Some I mean, similarities. The big feature and, of Betrayal is that like it's cooperative until there's the big betrayal, which is in yeah. the title, you know. Um, which I think is the the coolest part of that game. You don't really have that that kind of big surprise, like oh my gosh, you're the bad guy, and nobody knew it. Sure. No, the the big surprise comes as Keith said, where where the the heroes don't know what's going on because they're uncovering clues. The big surprise is when they finally, after like an hour, go, I, we can't find the second clue. And someone goes, how do we get in this room? And you're like, oh, I put that piece on the board backwards. And there's, yeah, no door, there's no door leading into the room that has the second clue. So that's what we call the worst right there. Yeah, that is the worst. Oh, yeah, look at that. You, you can't get in the room that has the key to get you into the other room. Oh, well. Uh, start over? Suddenly there's an earthquake, and boom, look at that. This thing, the room flips around, and you can suddenly get into it. And, and yeah. uh, oops. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, see that once you mentioned it was a, a three-hour game, I'm not quite as interested now. But eh, maybe I'll have to think about it, talk it over with the misses, and see if we'll go ahead on that. Some of the other shows that Galactic Netcast has, boy, uh, shows like Weird World Weekly, where they talk about urban legends, um, discussions on. Oh, conspiracy theories and different things like that. It's a shorter show. It's about 15 to 20 minutes, and it's a, it's a good, hearty discussion between uh, Dave Nelson and Matt Stein. Uh, we also have a show that we record on Thursday nights. The show is The Alien Invasion and The Sci-Fi Geeks Club. Both deal with, well, The Alien Invasion is more about aliens that you find in... 
uh, science fiction in movies and literature, and then you know maybe we'll have a weekly world news story that we that we laugh about or different things like that. Uh, Sci-Fi Geeks Club, we have guests on that have something to do with or contribute or in some way deal with uh, the sci-fi genre. Then we have a, a nice uh, roundtable discussion about news and something specific to uh, what their particular expertise is in. And then we have a show called The Podcast of Terror, which is uh, a show strictly about horror uh, in films and other, other mediums. Oh, and we also have Galactic Net Bites. Uh, we have uh, Who Knew and Reviews, and we're about to have another Galactic Net Bite. Surviving in apocalyptic situations, and then the discussion of what that particular catastrophe might be. So that's that's a show that's going to be coming coming to us here in probably about a month or so. So we're looking forward to that. You can check all of these shows out at gncasts.com. Our Kickstarter spotlight. Uh, last week we talked about the Mind's Eye Theater Werewolf the Apocalypse, and they are currently at 479 backers, and they have currently raised at this moment in time $49,546, and they're looking to hit a $70,000 goal and good news, there's 43 days left to go. So I think that they're well on their way. And I think when we talked about it last week, kind of talked about if you hit their $35 pledge level, you get the PDF version as well as a soft cover copy. And as a former LARPer, I can tell you having a soft cover in one of your pockets is always a, a nice thing to have. Uh, <laughs> get you out of a jam and... Uh, help give you better insight into your particular character's abilities. So uh, they are most certainly well on their way, and this is By Night Studios who is putting this together. Now, Glenn, you have a new Kickstarter for us, and what is that Kickstarter? This Kickstarter is Beer Garden. It's a light card-laying game of Bavarian traditions. Being a uh, fat man of half German descent. I was immediately attracted to this game. <laughs> Basically, just, it is... I, I love the, the, the cover the, for the video, the first image that you see for the video. And if you're checking out the YouTube version, you can see this jolly German gentleman with his yep. mustache and a big stein of beer. Yes. He looks and I'm from Milwaukee, and that's, you know, that guy is, is everywhere. He, <laughs> he, he gets around town a lot. Um, his name is uh, Gunter. <laughs> But uh, this game, it's a uh, you've got 64 cards and you're actually playing them like like you played tiles in the game like Carcassonne or something like that, and you're playing these cards to build your own Bavarian style basically beer garden. So you can go for particular themes, you can go to try to get the most seating. There's different things that you can do. It's it's basically the cards are uh, illustrations of tables and then basically timbered walls because that's what German beer gardens have is they have timbered walls and they have tables. And you know maybe an Oompa Loompa band. <laughs> it just it it struck me as interesting just one because of, of the the concept. I mean I I like tile games and I like beer and beer gardeny type things. Just you know it's in Milwaukee you can't avoid such things. It's it's city law. You have to <laughs> have to like these things. Uh, thankfully I like it anyways. 
they are currently, ah, look at that, since I last looked at it, they were looking for $10,000. Uh, they have $10,514 with 417 backers with 23 days to go. And it's from Steamboat Gothic Studio. You can actually get a copy of the game for 15 bucks, which is pretty darn good. A deluxe copy at 20 We need a numbered version of the game and access to the digital templates used to create the cards so you can make your own. Well, that's kind of nifty. Or you can just do the, you know, the $1. Hey, welcome to the Sauerkraut Challenge. We will film artist and game designer Andrew Solwasser eating one bite of sauerkraut in your honor. <laughs> Oof. Uh, if you pledge $70, they'll draw you into every version of the game. That's pretty low for something like that. Yeah, I was going to say. I did something like that for a role player, and I tried. <laughs> I was looking uh, for 500 bucks per person in the game. You got a couple, didn't you? Three people took it, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I thought $70 seemed really really, <laughs> really cheap for that one. So Yeah, and they've got... There's 16 left out of the 50 that they had available, so yeah, it's a, there's a definite interest there. Yeah, it's already got some some good reviews online as well from people who've played it, uh, including uh, Rado, who Rado plays through his uh, a fairly well-known play and review uh, series on YouTube. Meeple Mechanics giving it a good review, so it's got some good press behind it as well. Cards look fun, you know. We got it's a little hard to see because I have such bad eyesight, but. I see, uh, I see tables. I see, you know, women in the little German dresses that they're supposed to have. It was it like a dirndl or whatever thing that they wear? I don't know. I don't know the terms. I should know. I'm probably going to get kicked out of the city. Uh, <laughs> and they are shooting for September of this year to ship out. So, and from what I've seen of their video where they've run playtests, it's. I mean, the game looks like it's done. Uh, so it's not like you're really. This is probably just them waiting then for final production of how many copies they end up wanting to do or can afford to do. So Yeah, those I mean, they've got all those kind of personalized pictures of people. That's gonna take some time. <laughs> that takes time because you well first you have to get them done and then you have to get like the people who pledge to them to kind of approve them before you move forward and and then you're like you know, there'll be people who pledge to that level that, that didn't like get pictures of themselves to you in time and you have to harass them to get that and if you have a lot of those, that can slow you down. But they have 34 so far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I just had the three, and it still took me, like, probably three weeks to get that done. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully that doesn't bog the process down too much. Uh, looking at their stretch goals, well, they've already... The game is going to happen. They've met their goal. Right. So they're looking at uh, if they hit 12,000... They're going to add eight more cards, which will be four new home cards and four common cards for the game. If they manage to hit 15,000, they'll have higher quality card stock, which that would be that would be really nice, especially if it's a game that you're going to play a lot of, and especially if it's a quicker game. If it takes about, they say it takes about 20 minutes to play a game, you're probably going to want to sit down and probably play a few rounds of it. So I have a feeling that's a game that, uh, based on the reviews that we're seeing, it's probably going to be played a lot. So having a higher quality card stock would not be a bad thing at all. And 18, it's nice 000? and portable, too, so you can play beer garden in a beer garden. How meta is that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you could go to Summerfest. I mean, that, I mean not, nothing personal, Keith, but I've never played bullfrogs in a swamp. Well, you should try it. It's really yeah. quite fun. <laughs> Uh, you, should sleep, you should sleep your cards, though. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Laminate them, at least. Yeah. Right. 
if they manage to hit 18,000, uh, they'll translate the rules. We'll add three single-sheet inserts translating the rules into German, French, and Spanish. That's very interesting. All right. It looks like these guys are out of St. Louis. Yep, that's what it looks like. Steamboat Gothic is They've the done name nothing, of the company. So I, I, th I think this is their first real big project. Well, it looks like it's going to be successful because yep. they hit their pledge goal and they've got 23 more days at least as of this point. They got it funded in the first week, which is That's which is sign. very good. That's a very good sign. Uh, they definitely have done a good marketing campaign, you know, getting the uh, the game out to reviewers to kind of build that buzz and good for them. So I think that they've got a good game plan here and I have a feeling that we're going to see more from them in the future. And for our hundreds of European listeners, they are EU-friendly shipping. Ooh. Oh, nice. And it looks like they're going to use Panda for manufacturing, and they do a really good job. So um, the final product, product should be pretty uh, high quality. Oh, yeah. I saw, I saw. I talked to some people from Panda at Gen Con this year. Yeah, they do all of, like, Tasty Minstrel stuff, and they do all of... I think they do Plaid Hat. They do, yeah, Plaid Hat. They do. Oh, my. Minion, they did, obviously, they did Bullfrogs, and they'll be doing role-player as well. Oh, so. yeah. Dead of Winter is, is them. Terra yep. Mystica. Uh, above and Below. Yep. So, yeah, they, of, do, uh, they do a lot of... So good. They've teamed up with uh, a very good quality company, so that's that's even even good, even better to hear. Yep. I almost said even gooder to hear. <laughs> My English has well, gone. Be, <laughs> now you have, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move on to uh, talking about Thunderworks games with uh, our guest, Keith Mateka. And sure. tell us, let, let's just start out right off the bat. Tell us about Thunderworks. Sure. So Thunderworks is basically me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, you know, I, I decided at some point that uh, I wanted to try to design some games, and I decided, <laughs> maybe foolishly, but that I wanted to try to publish them myself instead of trying to court a publisher, so I needed a legal entity, and so Thunderworks was born. So my two-year-old son helped me name the company. Um, he, when he first saw Fireworks, he called them Thunderworks, and I thought that was cool, so <laughs> I named the company after that. So Bullfrogs was my first effort. I ran a Kickstarter for it in the spring of 2014, um, and then it was published in 2015 in like January, February. I printed about 2,600 copies, and those are almost all gone at this point. And there's another publisher called Renegade Games, which you may have, may have heard of. Um, they're licensed, they, they picked it up for me and are going to do the next, um, the next printing of it, actually. So there's a second edition that's about to come out this spring from Renegade uh, with a totally different cover that is kind of targeting more of like a mass market kind of family, uh, kind of, family kind of uh, market, whereas in mine was... My cover was kind of a little bit darker, kind of more of a gamer's cover. And then uh, this year, this this November, I just ran the, a Kickstarter for my second game called Roleplayer, which is a, a much kind of heavier game, and uh, that was successful in the middle of, of December, and now I'm kind of prepping for production on it. Yeah, and uh, I can't remember what episode it was, but we definitely highlighted uh, Roleplayer. Cool. And, yeah, uh, Roleplayer is a funny one. I was kind of done with the uh, Bullfrogs and was kind of looking for something to do, and actually I was at a Protospiel event, which 
know you guys had Eric Jomi here the other day talking about Photospiel stuff, but I was at the Photospiel in Madison here, and, uh, you know, you never know when that kind of spark of inspiration is going to come, and I was like, I just played somebody else's game, <laughs> a friend of mine's game, and I just, like, had this idea. Like, uh, he was working on a game that was kind of like an 18-card RPG where everybody got dealt cards, and out of two cards, you created your character, and then the rest of the cards kind of created... Um, locations and kind of obstacles, and then you just kind of start role playing. Um, and I was like, you know, I don't really like the game that much. I don't think he's working on it anymore, but uh, James Ryan is the designer of that one. But I was like, what if the whole game was about making your character? It's like, how how meta is that? So, <laughs> and I mean, it, it just kind of came together super quick, and I play tested it for like three times a day for literally three or four months. Glenn has played it uh, a couple times, I think. Yep, I liked and, it a lot. Uh, yeah, and there it is. So uh, I'm happy that the campaign went really well, and uh, I'm kind of, you know, working on on that. And then I've got some new stuff in the works as well. I've got a there's a game from another designer that actually a game that I played at that same Protospiel um, from a guy named Scott Eaton. It's like a super light kind of speed game where you're uh, you're trying to you're rolling a dice as fast as you can, and you're trying to collect different types of fruit uh, tokens to fulfill. Uh, smoothie recipes because you're you're working in like a smoothie shop, so that's definitely more of like a family game, but it's super fun, like five to ten minutes long maximum. So I've been working on that, and then I've been working on the design for a role player expansion as well. So oh, keep nice. Busy. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so when you you talked about creating a legal entity as a person that might you know start their own game company or their own. Uh, if they want to release a game and need to create that legal entity, uh, my question would be the route that you took. Did you incorporate or did you do an LLC? So yeah, ThunderWorks was an LLC. I mean, my main motivator initially was just like, I've got this money that I'm spending towards getting this, these games off the ground. I need to be able to separate these things from my personal money, you know, to like, so then I needed separate checking accounts and like just so, just to keep my sanity and when I was doing taxes at the end of the year. Um, so I just kind of created an LLC, and I mean, it's, it's relatively straightforward. You just kind of go to the Wisconsin government website, and you fill out the form, and pay the 60 bucks or whatever, and you're now an LLC. You know, it's it's, it's not that complicated, but I mean, it's definitely kind of nerve-wracking and scary. But whatever, you just go for it, right? Yeah. Yep. Well, that, I mean, that's really great that it's very straightforward and and very simple to do to. You know, if, if if you're achieving your dream of putting out a game, that you can just you know go to to a website and and put forth the cash and and have that level of protection, but you know also I don't want to say legitimize because that almost it sounds like a negative connotation, but having well, that is true. Um, yeah. You're no, like, okay, we'll go with this that. is a real thing. It's like okay, I have a company. Okay, this is getting more real. You know, <laughs> sure. until you press like that first, you know. Up until the point in which, like, you press the launch button on your Kickstarter campaign, it always feels like I could I could back out of this if I wanted to, like, you know. But as soon as you press that launch button, you're like, all right, here we go, you know. <laughs> like, even like I paid for all this artwork and all this stuff, I could have just cut the cord and be like, hey, I don't want to do this, and then it was it would have been lost money. But as soon as you press that launch button and you hit your hit your your funding goal, you have this huge obligation to. To all these backers, and um, the other thing that a lot of people who are kind of getting putting out their own board games, I think there's a there's a there's a difference between people who kind of just want to get a game out there and see it on the shelves with their name on it, versus people who are 
legitimately like creating a business, and we'll be continuing to put out games and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so it's it's always kind of interesting to see. Like sometimes you see Kickstarter campaigns, you're like, the money on this doesn't make any sense. These these guys <laughs> will probably barely break even, and then you kind of see the the guys that have done it four or five times. You kind of you know they're much more kind of conservative about you know what they're promising backers because you know they're trying to minimize their risk, and maximize the potential to be successful and stuff. So it's been a learning process over the last two or three years, but and there's still lots to learn. But sure. It's been fun. It, you one of the questions that I've had because. I know Glenn and I have backed a, a number of games through Kickstarter, and looking at some of the the newsletters that some of these board game companies have have put out with, like I backed Secret Hitler, sure, and they are going through the process now of finalizing the designs for the wooden box. Sure, if if you backed at a certain level, you could get a wooden box to house the cards, and they put out like a vote for four different designs that they had to kind of let the backers, let their voice be heard to see what they should put on, on the wooden box for the final design for it. And I thought that was kind of cool. But then, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the company and what game it was. They had some delays in one of the companies that was shipping product to them shipped it to the wrong location and it sat in a warehouse for a week before they sure. could get everything corrected and sent to the company that is actually fulfilling all this and I guess my question to you especially as you're in the process of making some of these things happen here how does somebody who is putting out their first game find a, a fulfillment type business like this for Kickstarter sure well, one, I wanted to comment about your your comment about like letting the backers kind of be involved in the kind of the creation process. Mm-hmm. I think that's like one of the coolest parts of, of Kickstarter is like you're able to kind of you know not only do you get to raise the funds and minimize some of the risk on putting out these kind of independent projects, but you make kind of these connections with the backers and you get to uh, allow them to get involved in the process, which is one of the reasons why people are attracted to backing Kickstarter projects because they want to be involved in them. You know, I had, for for example, on Roleplayer, that I allowed people to get to pledge to levels that allowed them in the game, and then I also gave people an opportunity to vote on, you know, what what races do we want to have as the unlock stretch goals and stuff. So, I think stuff like that people are really into, and it kind of drives engagement, which kind of drives a lot of the momentum for the project. The people, the more engaged they are, they're kind of talking about the project more and gets more eyes on it and stuff. But anyway. Sure. Uh, in terms of fulfillment, I mean, there's a couple, there's a, there's a handful of, of good uh, fulfillment houses out there. I mean, James Matthew over at Minion has a really good website that has collated some of that data. Oh, but okay. If you go to jamesmatthew.com, he's got like some really good uh, posts that have uh, that's collated lists of manufacturers and lists of fulfillment companies. And you know, one of the things that you can do that I, I've done this numbers of times is like I've backed all these projects on Kickstarter, so I kind of you know if you you read the updates and you get to hear about like the fulfillment fulfillment companies that other people are using, or if you think you got a Kickstarter that you felt like maybe the fulfillment went really well, you can email that creator and ask them who they use, and and people are definitely more than willing to kind of share their experiences with you. Um, for Bullfrogs, I decided to use Fulfillrite, which is a U.S.-based fulfillment studio, uh, company out of uh, New Jersey. Um, and I picked them because I wanted to use BackerKit, which is kind of a third-party service that allows you just like a pledge manager, which are really nice if you have complicated campaigns. 
Bullfrogs wasn't a huge complicated campaign, but I thought um, I got like a, a good rate on getting set up on there. So the one thing that's nice about Backer Kit is they can take additional orders after the Kickstarter is completed. Okay. And then they have like three or four companies that they can ship the or they can send the shipping information directly to. So I just say, hey, I want to ship this stuff. Send this stuff to Phil right, and then it just automatically goes over there, and you know things start getting shipped right away. So in terms of just Making it easy for me, I, I really like those guys. I, I had a good experience with Fulfill, right? But I mean, you can go through a bunch of different fulfillment houses and get estimates of what their their charges are for your your game. So okay. the thing the thing there's also to be considered the EU friendly is a is a pretty complicated thing that people like to see on Kickstarter campaigns. And for small games like Bullfrogs, I was because it's so small, um, it kind of flies under the radar of a lot of the VAT charges that, that people receive. Okay. So that game, I shipped the entire thing from the U.S. just because there weren't that many companies that were doing fulfillment that were EU-friendly, like kind of turnkey solutions. It was all like, here, if you do these 20 things, you can figure out EU-friendly shipping. <laughs> oh, I, was like, I was like, I get to like step three, I was like, I can't figure this out. I'm just going to ship from the U.S. and the game is small enough that very few people will be hit with the charge. Now, Roleplayer is a significantly bigger game. It's the, kind of the box would be the size of like a Gricola or something like that. So if I ship that from the U.S. to somebody in Europe or whatever, they're going to get slammed with some pretty heavy fees. So I decided to go with Ship Naked on that one. So Ship Naked is a company coming out of Games Salute. It's owned by Dan Harrington. Blind might know his last name. Harrington. Yeah. He's uh, So he owns Games Salute as well. And um, he doesn't have the greatest um, reputation in the gaming community, I would say. So I was kind of nervous about using those guys earlier, but I, I got in contact with them this time, and they kind of had a year to kind of get their act together to some degree because they were new when I was looking for stuff when I was launching Bullfrogs. And so they've got multiple warehouses in Europe as well as in the U.S., and their solution is pretty turnkey. I mean, you can go to their website and you can look up what the cost of your package is going to be and... You know, I emailed them for some information, and like the dude emailed me right back, and we had some Skype calls going on, so the communication was really good. So it increased my confidence, and I decided to go with them on this one. Nice. Whereas in a year ago, or I guess it was a year and a half ago, when I was looking at them for uh, bullfrogs, like I'd email them, and like I would get a response back like three weeks later. I was like, forget uh, these guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go somewhere else. But I think the, my rep over there is Matt Fox. He, he does a podcast called The Little Metal Dog Podcast, I think. Hmm. But anyway, fulfillment's tricky, man. I probably, I definitely underestimated how much it was going to cost to ship bullfrogs. And then people have returns or people people don't, don't update their mailing addresses in time or whatever. And then uh, yeah. it causes loss. You know, you get the product back and then you email them. You're like, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, I didn't get it. You This seven in my zip code was supposed to be a six. And you're like, okay. Frick. <laughs> So you got to send it out again, and, and you're kind of you're not making any money at that point because the margins yeah. are pretty small. But sure. um, that's the fun uh, to do with fulfillment. I mean, I, when I first started, I was like, I had this romantic idea that I was going to have all these games on my kitchen table, and my friends were going to come over, and we're going to have pizza and box all this stuff up, and it's going to be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, wait a second, that sounds awful. Why would I do that? <laughs> so I didn't have a plan for distribution for Bullfrogs when it when it was done, I was trying to get it into distribution, and there's a couple guys that, that take small indie uh, publishers and kind of represent all their stuff. So Impressions is probably the most well-known one, and I had approached him about t- taking Bullfrogs, and he 
he basically said that he was too busy. I was like, well, that kind of screws me. But <laughs> whatever, you know, I kind of, I contacted him too late. I had already put in my order um, at my manufacturer, and I knew that the games were coming, so they were just coming to my garage because I didn't have anywhere else for them to go. Sure. Um, while I was trying to make connections with distributors. And basically, the, the game was coming in, and the reviews were coming in really, really high on it. And I emailed you know, the impressions guy, Aldo, again one last time, saying, hey, dude, sure you don't want to take Bullfrogs? It's getting good reviews. And ACD and the other guy and some of the other distributors are talking about taking them directly from me. And he was like, oh. And I also told him I was working on another game. And I think that might have been what changed his opinion to some degree. Sure. But He's like, oh, wait, I'll take it. So <laughs> basically four pallets of games got delivered to my garage. And like a week later, I was putting two of those pallets out of my garage into a truck to go to a warehouse in Indiana or Indianapolis or wherever the hell his warehouse is. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think all those in Indiana, Indianapolis. Yeah, the, the Chessex warehouse. Oh, Chessex, yeah, okay. Yeah, he, was, he uses their warehouse, but I think he's going to a new one or he's moving to a bigger space or something. Oh, so, nice. And uh, yeah. But I, I've learned a lot since then, and I've got a much like better plan for role player. I'm not having pallets of role player delivered to my house, you know. <laughs> sure. But I don't know. Uh, did, that, did, I, did that answer your question? Oh, absolutely, it did. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where you know we've had other indie gamer companies on the show, and I always like to ask them about their process, how they came up with games, which, I mean, you definitely covered, and, like, fulfillment is one question I, I've never gotten a chance to ask, so I'm really glad that you went through that, because, you know, I hope that there are listeners out there that are interested in, in putting out games or, you know, getting that information to, to get those games out there, and hopefully learn from some of the tough lessons that, that other indie game companies have, have had to go through kind of help them get steered on the right path to help them have an easier process to, yep. to get their games out there. So. so there's a lot more good resources out there now, people who've kind of done it before and willing to share. I just kind of had a taste of that recently, so I had I still had some copies of Bullfrogs here at my house, and as part of Roleplayer, uh, one of the pledge levels included a copy of Bullfrogs, and I would just basically set them from those from my house, and then they would get the ones from Roleplayer when they're produced. So I did have, like, my kitchen table full of 141 <laughs> orders of it, and it's, it totally sucks, you know? Like, Oh, I can uh, imagine. I mean... I, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 141 orders seem like a lot of the time, but I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to ship, you know, a thousand of these things. Uh, like, you know, drowning in these things for a month, I bet. You know, it's really interesting to see how certain industries spin off other industries out of it. So, like, Kickstarter and Indiegogo and some of these other companies came into being, and then everybody had the question of, well, shit, how do I get my stuff out there? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of interesting to see these other uh, businesses come into into place to try to help, you know, make that fulfillment and make it as easy as possible. Especially when you talk about turnkey solutions, having the ability to be able to contact everybody that's backed you and then kind of keep them up to date. I'm sure that in the early days of Kickstarter, that was a real pain to try to do. But you know, you get these these cool solutions in place, and that can be a lot easier further down the line to you know, be able to report back and let people know and... Yeah, in terms of, in terms of like communication stuff, you know, there's companies like Backerkit or other companies that, that either providing value by letting you sell more of the product or kind of organizing your backers a little bit. You know, I think people are seeing, hey, these Kickstarter projects are making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. People see an opportunity to get a piece of that. 
So in Bullfrog, I used one like that where I could it was like an easy solution to get more orders and, and to organize my backers. But in Roleplayer, I decided to roll it back. I'm like, I don't want to give these guys a percentage of my, my money. I'm going to try to do it the old school way by keeping it simple so then I can manage the surveys myself. I can send it all through Kickstarter. And then I'll just take pre-orders on my own website. That means I'm not paying for this additional service. Sure. So that's going okay, I would say. I think if I had a more complex campaign, I would go back to using something like Backerkit but, or something simple. I think sure. you can get away doing it on your own as long as you're organized and diligent with your own stuff. You know, and you, to kind of follow up, you mentioned that the margins are pretty slim as is. In your experience, how do you come up with a good way to figure out what, what backer levels and what people should get and how much the game should be based on all the overhead that comes with getting a game produced, printed, and, and shipped out to everybody? Lots of Excel food is what I, I use. Yeah. Lots, of, lots of Excel spreadsheets, right? <laughs> I mean, as a general rule... There's like a as a general rule, like manufacturing costs should be one one fifth or one sixth of the MSRP. Okay. Um, so and I think Kickstarter projects tend to push that a little bit, but I'm just trying to find something my specific uh, my P&L that I I built for this project for Bullfrog. So yeah, I mean you have to take into account all your all your shipping costs, and you have to keep in mind that you're probably going to print a minimum of 1,500 units, okay. um, which will probably turn into 1,600 units because when they turn up turn on the printers, then um, they're going to print a little bit more than what you asked for, just to make sure. They say it's part of their color testing process, which I don't know if that's true or not, but um, they can print up to like t- up to 10% over what you what you ordered, and then they'll charge. They're going to charge you for it too. So ah, yeah, um, okay. <laughs> unless unless you kind of tell them they can't do that, then you might get less than what you asked for. Sure. Um, so well, as someone who worked in a, a print shop doing book work printing, that's generally standard. Is you have to run those test copies to make sure everything turns out right, and right. yeah, and it's they they just push it right off to you. You, the person, oh, yeah, so we're already charging you a service uh, for the service, but we're going to charge you this extra fee for this extra product you don't want because that's not included in the service fee you're already paying. <laughs> right. I mean, whatever. I'll, I'll take the extra 150 copies and sell them, but uh, you have to account for that, right? It's like, yeah. Um, so you have to print, you know, usually a minimum of 1,500, and then you can kind of guess that you're going to get between, I don't know, I mean, it's a big range between 500 to 1,000 backers. And, you know, I make estimates based on, you know, 50% of the backers are usually from the U.S., so you kind of assume that, and then kind of do maybe 10% to uh, Canada, and then the rest is all over the world. And what else? So and I just, you just try to hit that sweet spot. It's like I, basically you try to set it up so that all the copies that you build and that you ship, and then when you're done with that part of it and you have whatever left over, you've broken even. So everything you have in addition to that is profit that I can then roll into my next game. So that's the way I, I try to structure it. And, and quite honestly, that, that seems to make the most sense. I mean, I would, I would say any business that you have, you're always going to be, if you're smart, you'll always be trying to roll that in, into your next thing, uh, especially right. when you're first starting out. I mean, it's, it's nice because like in my first game, I now will have licensed it to somebody else to kind of worry about and, and do whatever they want with, and you know, I get a paycheck. And I can focus my efforts on the next thing, 
And I'm kind of hoping to maintain that. If I can get like two or three games that continue to do well, then they can, somebody, I can license them to somebody else and they can worry about the print runs and all the details and the, many, the warehousing and all that stuff. And sure. I can just kind of work on development of a new product. So That's the dream, baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's the end goal. Right. Because, yeah, it's, most people don't get rich making, making games. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I, as, as a retailer, I hear, you know, well, people talk about, you know, who don't know, and they say, well, you know, this game costs 50 bucks or 40 bucks. I'm like, yep, costs 40 bucks in the store, which means the store bought it for probably 20 bucks. Right. Means the distributor bought it for probably 11. Mm-hmm. And then out of that 11 is everyone you had to pay who worked in the game, all the products, all the, all the print costs, all the production costs comes out 11 bucks, and whatever's left over, well, at 89 cents is yours in profit, baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, people are like, "Hey, man, how's the game selling?" I go, "Fine." You know, it's like yeah. if somebody walks into a, a game, you know, walks into the game barista and buys a copy of Bullfrogs off off the shelf, I make like a buck, buck fifty or something. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, that's cool. But it's like one of those things. It's like if you can hit, kind of get the momentum and get like if the game is good enough yeah. and get enough people playing it, and uh, you know, once it's it, it can be on the shelves for a couple of years and, and keep selling, then then uh, I think that's a win. You know. Yeah. Especially if you can, you know, it. From what we've seen of role player, it's pretty freaking awesome. So you know, you've definitely got two hits lined up here. And if you continue to do that, then you know you can go like you said, the licensing route and take some of that hassle and heartache off of your plate, <laughs> and and you know continue, continue development and and making new stuff and 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 going that route. Um, so this this time around, so with Bullfrogs, I went for like a big print run. I printed. 2,600 copies, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty big for kind of an indie board game. And so with Roleplay, I'm actually doing, I'm printing the minimum um, with the intention of, so there's going to, it's not going to be, basically I was trying to minimize my warehousing of it because I, I plan on, you know, doing a reprint in the spring or, or maybe even later into next year because I'm working on a, an expansion. So the idea is like, all right, when, the, when oh. I'm done with the expansion, I can do a Kickstarter for the expansion and also fund a reprint of the base sure. game at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, and I mean, it's a much bigger box. If I'm, my cost to store a pallet of games is like 12 bucks a pallet per month, which is, you know, it's not that big a deal if you've got one or two pallets, but where Bullfrogs, I've got 24 copies of it in a case. In Roleplayer, I have four copies of it in a case. So if I've got, got, you know, six pallets of these things in a warehouse, 12 bucks a month per pallet starts to add up for me. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm trying to minimize the storage of it and maybe build a little bit of scarcity so that when I do my next Kickstarter, there'll be a, a demand for it as well as the expansion. Nice. And then well, it, it, it leaves some of my funds loose so that I can start investing on artwork for the expansion while I'm in the process of manufacturing the base game too. Sure. So, I mean, really the core takeaway here is you got to have a plan. You got to do <laughs> the research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Very true. I mean, and when, when we talk the plan, part of that plan is the marketing. Even before you you know, hit launch on Kickstarter. You need to make sure you know all of your costs. You need to make sure you, or at least have a good idea of what those costs are. Right. And then, you know, planning out some communications, some surveys if you want to do those, and just have everything planned out as best you can before you even start uh, yep. with running to Kickstarter. Because if you don't, you're going to get shot in the ass and you're going to lose a lot of money on the deal. So. Yeah. I mean, for, like, for example, when, you know, Bullfrogs was much more popular uh, with European backers than I thought they were going to be. 
So I guess I wasn't aware that there's there's like this uh, association with uh, French people and frogs, which I didn't realize, you know. So there was like a really good review of bullfrogs that went up on a French gaming website, and I got all these international French backers, which was great because like my my numbers started soaring. You can like if you went to the Kickstarter page, there's like one point in the middle of the campaign where it goes, it's like a hockey stick. It's just like like that in the middle. <laughs> and people ask me like, what happened that that day? It's like some dude put a review up in France, and I didn't even ask for it, you know. Um, <laughs> And uh, which was awesome, but then when it came to uh, ship it, like I didn't anticipate such a high percentage of my oh, backers yeah. international. Uh, so it was like, all right, time to ship this thing. And you know, I, I basically ran out of money, so I had to get out my credit card and be like, all right, here we go, swipe with the credit card, let's ship the rest yeah. of these copies. And then, of course, I paid myself back after after they kind of started getting into retail and stuff. But um, it definitely was kind of an unexpected cost there. Yeah. So, yeah, making sure you have a plan and even a little bit of padding just in case because you never know. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that information, Keith. I, I know that that's – if there are people who are considering you know, creating their own game, having that bit of insight is going to be super valuable. So I really appreciate you answering those questions for us, Keith. That's yeah, no problem. Awesome. And uh, we definitely want to have you back, especially when you have your, your next game. Sure. We definitely want to have you back. All right. We're going to move on to Hello, My Name Is, and that's your opportunity to tell us about your favorite character that you have or are currently playing. You can go to gncasts.com and click on the Adventure Party uh, podcast page link, and there is a graphic for Hello, my name is. Click that, and there is a short form you can fill out with uh, information about you, the character, the game system that that character is from, and why that character is so cool. Uh, if you do that, uh, I will send you a, uh, a certificate suitable for framing uh, that talks about you and your character. And uh, as just as a thank you for taking the time to uh, contact us, we'll talk about your character on an episode, uh, Adventure Party, and uh, highlight you and your character. Uh, I do ask for your email address. I don't have a mailing list. I don't spam people with crap. Uh, the only reason why I have that is just so I can email that certificate back to you and uh, with a little note saying thank you for taking the time to uh, to talk with us and let us know about your character that you're playing. Uh, we got some feedback, Glenn. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a, uh, a bit of feedback from, uh, oh boy, uh, Kanadi Nilo. I'm probably doing your name no justice, and I apologize if I have butchered it. Back from our meeting number seven with Patrick Rothfuss, Kanadi says, thanks so much for this awesome cast. Love the interview. You can thank Pat for my subscribe. So thank you very much for subscribing to the YouTube version of the show. Uh, if you go to gncast.com uh, or if you go to Stitcher or iTunes, we're also available there in a more cleaned up. The video version is more raw. Yeah, maybe that's what you you want. The ums and the ahs and all the awkward pauses. Is this what you have. want? Is this what you want? <laughs> no, leave the shirt on. Leave the shirt on. Oh, man. <laughs> We're not going that route. That that's a that's the pay version that I plan to have later on, Glenn. All right. 
And then uh, listener and friend Gretchen Wolfmeyer. She is the wife of uh, of Dr. Randy Wolfmeyer, who is on our third meeting of the Adventure Party. And uh, Randy does a lot of uh, terrain work and makes fabulous and elaborate terrains that would make you weep to look at. Uh, on Facebook, uh, she mentioned that on episode number 36, where we talk with Nick Bentley, we mentioned Gretchen's love of coffee and 3D printing with recycled materials and joked about how Gretchen would consume terrain if it were made out of coffee. And she was very kind enough to share a link with us about a company who has created something where you can actually print with coffee grounds. It's very interesting to see that recycled material, and it looks pretty durable. So we joked about it, and uh, it actually exists. So uh, thanks for letting us know about that, Gretchen. For when you want a game all night. <laughs> Stop licking the terrain. It's <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> Uh, you can find out more about our meetings, uh, the show notes for each meeting, contact info, and subscription links by going to gncasts.com slash adventure. You can find us and follow us on Twitter, or you can join our Facebook group by using the Facebook search term, Galactic Netcasts. And yeah, we have a Facebook page, but we're far more active with uh, the listening community of Galactic Netcasts on the Galactic Netcasts group page. So uh, hit us up there. You can also find all of our social media outlets by clicking on the links on our website called gncasts.com. I may have mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, you can find our YouTube channel where you can see the video versions that I've talked about repeatedly for our adventure party meetings. And you can go to youtube.com slash galactic netcasts. And all you need to do is click on the playlist called Adventure Party. Uh, if you're using iTunes or Stitcher, you can take a moment to give us a review. We'd really appreciate that. And let us know what you think. Uh, your review, positive or negative, can help us shape the adventure party and uh, help make it better. You can leave us feedback by emailing. I love the fact that we now have the shortened email address. It makes, makes my heart happy. You can uh, hit us up on email, adventure at gncasts.com, adventure at gncasts.com, or you can call or text us at the number 805-328-3966, 805-328-3966. You can leave a message or text message. Uh, fees may apply depending on your particular cell plan. Uh, I want to thank you, Keith, uh, for taking the time to, to talk to us yeah, we talked a bit about Thunderworks, but we ended up talking a lot about fulfillment and, and Kickstarter and, and what it takes to, to make something happen, to, uh, to put a business together and get the games out to people to, to have them play. And I really appreciate you giving us all that information, Keith. Yeah, happy to be here. And uh, where can people find out more about you or Thunderworks Games? Sure, you can uh, have a website, which is www.thunderworksgames.com. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter at ThunderworksGAM. Um, ran out of ran out of uh, letters on that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm also on Facebook, and I'm out there, so I'm pretty easy to find. But Twitter and Facebook probably the easiest ways. Or go to Madison, the magical land of game designers. It is. I mean, that's the one thing uh, Glenn and I talked about uh, the other day. Is like there's a ridiculous number of game designers in Madison, Wisconsin, and I mean, I, th I think it's a really interesting community, and one thing that, that I'm trying to do is, I mean, I was, I tell people the story, and maybe it's silly, but 
Um, I was watching this documentary about like grunge in the 90s, right? And so when they're in Seattle, like there's interviews with like Trill Jerem and Soundgarden and, and Mother Love Bone and all these guys. And the one thing that was struck me as is awesome is that they talk about how they used to like go to each other's shows and try to like pump each other's bands up and like try to build like a real strong community. And like that's something that I would love to see uh, in Madison in, in the world of game designers. I mean. King Klenko is here, who has like four or five games out. He's really hot right now. And uh, Seth Van Orn, just uh, stockpile, has been successful in the last year. Um, and the guys, uh, there's a, a pair of guys that put out a game called uh, Copper Country last year that hmm. that are doing really well. And um, you know, even my, my local game store, which is I'm bored, the guy who owns that place is a uh, he used to be a designer. He he did uh, a bunch of CCGs and stuff in the 90s. So okay, um, yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. Yeah, he is good. Uh, Brian's uh, really supportive of the local designers, and he often has like local game designer days or like kind of tournaments featuring games from local designers. Brett oh, Myers, cool. is, Brett Myers is in Madison. He did uh, recently a game called uh, Rome: City of Marble, and he did a game called Nanook for Steve Jackson Games. So hmm. there's a handful of us out here. Yeah, <laughs> a couple handfuls. Yeah, <laughs> and there's there's more. I mean, there's a, oh, there's a ton of designers. Yeah, oh yeah, Ed Marriott, who did Scoville, is out here, and uh, I played oh, a, okay. a handful of, of his games that are it's still in development. And then, I mean, there's a lot of guys in Milwaukee, too, so there's definitely a strong game design groups both in Milwaukee and Madison. So, I, You know, the thing about Wisconsin, especially this time of year, it's so cold, you really don't want to go outside. So <laughs> dreaming... especially, especially today. <laughs> yeah, today it is ridiculous. It is, it's not like polar vortex bad, but it's it's bad enough. I don't know, man. A little negative eleven today, or whatever it was. Yeah, and the, once that wind starts blowing, oof, yeah, it's it's ugly. I think yeah, at I'm, certain points yesterday it was about thirty six below with the wind chill. It's ridiculous. Yeah, somebody told me once that like basically, I think it was a it was a distributor or something. It was like basically the further north you get, the better game sales get. You know. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Keith Mateka. Yes. Make sure I got your last name in one more time. You got it, and, dude. <laughs> and what is the name of that uh, the, the uh, game shop that you're talking about in Madison? Oh, it's uh, I'm Board Games and Family Fun. On Board Games and Family I'm Fun. I'm Board. Yes. It's what? on University Avenue in Middleton. There's. I mean, oh. that's that's the other thing. It's interesting. Like, I visit my sister in California, and like, you can't find a game shop. To save your life, and in Madison, the small little town, we have like five game shops. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's a big college town, so that doesn't surprise me too much. I'm yeah, kinda... there's there's like one down by the down by the college, but yeah, there's definitely some college kids for sure. <laughs> Just a couple. Like a few, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm... the uh, the population of of students would easily fill uh, Wassa, Wisconsin, where I'm uh, in and around. So. I'm get, oh, there's got to be more than 36,000 students at that school. That's ridiculous. But yeah. uh, there you go. That's Madison for you. Um, yeah. And I want to thank Glenn for once again joining me on this journey that we call the Adventure Party. Where can people find out more about you, Glenn? You can find out more about me. I am on Facebook, uh, just me, as well as uh, the B-Movie Bunker, where I do my movie reviews, Nickel Productions, where I do my little bit of film work. I got stuff up for Mistrunner. You can go to mistrunner.com, although I have been very, very 
poor father to that website. And you can just follow me on uh, Twitter at Naked Hobo. It never, never gets old. It makes me laugh every time I hear it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us at the Adventure Party. May your characters never die and your adventures always be epic. Thank you and good night. have been listening to a production of Galactic Netcasts. For more about this show and others, go to gncasts.com. That's g n c a s t s.com. <laughs>